0: Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. <coughs> Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down into ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed. How completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O oh Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you, you hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who aren't faithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds.
1: Um, I struggled with anger a lot. It wasn't just teenage uh, hormones going through my uh, pumping muscles and veins. I used to have muscles. They since went south. Um, But overnight... One of the signs that I became a Christian was that there was a moment of transformation where I stopped struggling with anger in the same way. I say that because there are lots of people in this world that are just angry. You can look at road rage. You can look at Audi rage. I experienced that quite a lot on Mondays. But whether you're a Christian or not, I guarantee you will struggle with anger at some point. So you might say, hang on, well I'm not a Christian, I'm not yet a Christian, I'm really sceptical about these things but I'm here at church to do a friend a favour, I'm just looking, I'm just kicking the tyres. I want to say to you from this psalm that actually anger will be at the root in all probability at a, with a lot of your skepticisms, with a lot of your doubts, with a lot of your concerns about whether God exists or not. Because beneath the issue of we live in a world with lots of struggling, And difficulty is the presupposition, the idea that says, if there is a God who is a God of love, then surely this world should be a world without suffering. Do you see? It's not just uh, if you are not yet a Christian that you might struggle with anger or confusion about how a loving God rules the world. If you're a Christian, you still struggle with anger too. Here is a man, Asaph, who wrote this psalm. And surely... When I become a Christian, all things should go well. When I become a Christian, my career path should be easier. Suffering should end. Suffering should be lessened a wee bit because I'm a Christian and God's now on my side. And when that doesn't pan out the way you expect, God, come on, I thought you were on my side. You can start to think like that. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not yet a Christian. Anger is at the root of a lot of our issues Counselors will tell you that. There's one thing that we fail to admit more than anything else and that's that we struggle with anger. And so it's typical in a church of our size or a big church or even a smaller church for people to be wrestling with the hand that they're dealt if they're Christians. God, if you're on my side, it should be better than this. Or if you're not yet a Christian, you're looking at the world as Christians and non-Christians do alike with the question of why does a good God allow then you fill in the blank. Here we have a man, Asaph, who is struggling with injustice in the world. This morning we finish up this series before we start looking at the book of Ruth next week for four weeks. We're looking at this issue of big issues in the world, modern problems with biblical or ancient solutions. Here's a man who's very realistic. He's very honest. it's It's a tough psalm. And he says, I'm trying to live for God as number one in my life, and yet I look at the world... And it doesn't add up to me. Verse 21 and 22. God seems to be mishandling the world. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Paraphrase, I was mad at you. I don't understand what you're doing in the world and it makes me mad. makes me want to throw my Bible across the room. Now let me explain. Asaph says three things about this problem of why he's angry. He says in verse 13, I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. In other words, I'm working really hard for you, God. I've got a clean heart. I'm trying to live a religious life. I'm trying to put you first. I'm trying to do my best. But look at verse 14. All day long, I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. So first thing, verse 13, I'm living a pure religious life. I'm living for you as number one, the best I can. But verse 14, this doesn't add up. I've been plagued. I've been punished in the morning. What's going on? We don't know if he's talking about an emotional or psychological pain or what, which makes it kind of nice because then you can put your own name in there. If you're feeling hard done by or struggling with God this morning, I'm sure some of us are. So he's living a religious life. He's struggling with what God is doing in his life. And if you read verses 4 to 12, 4 through 12, he's looking out on the world and he sees all sorts of people who are not living for God as number one. They are living for themselves as number one. They are living aggressive but successful lives. They are treating people harshly, but things are going well for them. And he's saying, hang on. I'm living for you as number one, but my life is hard. They're ignoring you, but their life is successful. How does that add up? I'm mad at you. See how it works? And he says, as I look out on the world... This reality that I can't put together, it almost broke me. I'm trying to live a good life. They are living a bad life, but it's successful. I'm trying to live a good life, but mine is lousy. The people who are trying to live a good life and not having a wonderful life. The people who are living with no thought towards you are having great life and success. Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, It was oppressive to me. It's gone round and round in circles. It makes no sense to me. So verses 20 and 21. I became angry and bitter towards you. He could feel the anger kind of churning in his heart. Lord, if you're there, I can't see you. Lord, I thought you were going to come through for me and you haven't. Why is it that I'm struggling and they're succeeding? See the issue at hand? But it gets worse. Verse 2. But as for me, because of this, because of this churning, the fact that the world doesn't add up, but as for me, verse 2, my foot had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So there's the picture. You're going up the Swiss Alps. You're going up the Welsh Dales. You're in a climbing room, guys, right? You're down there in the centre of Guildford. You're there on the Chesington Industrial Estate. You're going up the White Spider Wall You're there right on your foot, on your tippy-toes, and your foot almost, and you just grab hold, and you're safe. Yeah. Here he's saying, spiritually speaking, this reality in the world, man, I almost lost it. I almost died because I'm looking in the world. It doesn't add up, and God, you don't appear to be there anymore. It's not just I'm trying to understand, verse 16, and it's oppressive. Verse 2, this reality almost made me lose my faith in you. It's that big a deal. We all live for something, don't we? We all cling on to something. And here's a man putting God first, Asaph, and he's saying, this reality in the world, that bad people seek to succeed. Good people, they seem to have a really hard life. It would make make me almost lose it all. My foot almost slipped. But, verse 1, In spite of it all, in spite of this churning in the inside, his head's going round and round, it doesn't make sense. In spite of the fact that he's almost losing his faith footing, how is verse 1 there? That doesn't make any sense. Is it a kind of a typo of a pretty major variety? I almost lost it, but in spite of it all, he says, verse 1, God is good. I believe in the goodness of God. How did he stop losing his footing? Four steps. Four grabs. So that although the world doesn't make sense, here is a man who can say, verse one, God is good. God is good. What are the steps? If you're struggling with anger this morning, if not this morning, you will do. If not in the future, perhaps you have done. What are the steps when you feel like God has deserted you When you feel like you're losing your faith footing, how might you get back? So that you can say something like verse one. God is good. How do you do that? Here's four steps. Number one. This is a funny one. He grabbed hold of a negative. He grabbed hold of a negative. Verse 15. I thought about the children. Now this is a strange phrase. Why is it in the middle there? I thought about the children. Here is a man whose thinking is churned up. He's looking at the angles from different perspectives. It makes no sense to him at all that a good God allows hard-hearted people, verses 4 to 12, to prosper. No sense at all. I don't get it. Why, Lord, are you so unjust? Why isn't my life on the up? Why isn't their life on the down? And he kind of says, if I'd blurted out everything in my heart, the way I was feeling to you, I would have hurt a lot of people. Now, being in my profession, I talk to a lot of people who want to chuck it in. They want to stop living for Jesus. They might want, even if it's very serious, to end their life. And at that point, what do you say? Here is a man by himself. It doesn't make sense what God is doing. Where does his first thought go? Verse 15, I thought about other people. His first step, actually, in this instance, I don't think, is to think of God. He says, I'm about to throw it all away, but if I really blurted out how raw my feelings were, if I really made it clear that I wanted to end my life, not by chucking myself off a bridge, how gauche, I would do it more subtly. I would take an overdose of pills with vodka, because I'm a middle-class person, and that's what we do respectably. He says... I would not do that. I thought about the other people to whom I would do damage. I don't think he's talking about his own kids. I think it's a way of saying my actions have consequences to others. And so I thought about what I was going to do and the one thing I wanted to do, I realised that I would bring hurt to other people. So he's kind of grabbing hold of a negative. And I want to say to you, friends, that little moment of traction when he's about to chuck it all in, don't despise... This first step, when you are suffering from severe depression, when you are incredibly low, when it's a day of very small things, this may be your first step. I feel like ending it. God, my marriage is in tatters, the business has gone down the swanee. I feel like ending it all. The world would be better off, my family would be better off without me even being here. Just yesterday I read the story of Robin Smith, excellent uh, ex-batsman, and cricketer who played for Hampshire for a lot of time and uh, he wanted to end his life. And the only thing that stopped him was one of his children walking in. He didn't think about his children but they actually walked in and he stopped committing suicide and is now seeking help for addiction and actually training as a psychologist to help other sports people. Here we have an interesting comment. Verse 15, I thought about the children. doesn't make sense to me. It's a day of small things. And right now, verse 15, all I can do is think about my actions and their effects on other people. Don't despise that, friends. Not very spiritual. I don't despise that when people are very low. That can be the first step. But here's the second. He entered the sanctuary for understanding. Lads, get this. Number two, he entered the sanctuary for understanding. What does that mean? Look at verses 16 and 17. Sentence 16 and 17. It was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood. Then I understood. This is the epicenter of this psalm. This is so important that we're going to spend a few minutes here, please. When you feel angry at someone, the natural tendency is always to withdraw. It's always to pull back. You've hurt me, you don't understand, you're not there. God, this book has nothing to say to me. And so it flies. You know a Bible can fly, it can fly quite well until it hits something, hopefully not someone. But uh, a Bible can fly kind of pretty well. Or the best thing when you're hurt by God, when you feel like God isn't there, you think, well, if you're not there, if you've not answered my prayers, I'm not going to listen to you. And you slam the Bible shut and all that happens is it gathers no grease from your hands. It just gathers dust. But what did this mean? It's very understandable. It's perfectly common. He said, I'm going to withdraw from you. But then a moment changes, verses 16 and 17. I didn't understand what was going on in the world until until I entered the sanctuary. Now, what did that mean to Asaph? What that meant to Asaph was that a literal physical uh, sanctuary of God where there was bloody worship that would happen according to the Old Testament. He said, until I went into Jerusalem, I didn't understand what was going on. It wasn't Jerusalem, though. It was the temple where the worship of God happened. And when I went into your presence, then I started to figure out what was going on. When I saw the altar, when I saw the sacrifices, when I heard the priests, when I heard the Bible, the scriptures read, Here's the principle. We can't go to a temple. But here's the principle. When you are mad at God, when you're raging on the inside, do not keep your Bible shut with dust on it. Do not stop going to church. Do not pull back from service. When you're struggling with God, don't stop praying. It's the worst thing you can do. When you're struggling with God, when you're depressed and angry and mad about the way your life is going, that the spiritual hand that you've been dealt in some way Process your disappointments and anger and frustration and confusion in front of him, with him, not away from him. That's what this sentences are saying. You must go into his presence. I don't understand what's going on. Asaph feels like drawing back, but he doesn't. He goes to God and processes his heart there. There are a load of parallels between Psalm 73 and the book of Job. Job is the go-to passage in the Bible for a theology of suffering. It's a long book. That's the problem. You need a huge cup of coffee to get through it. But there's loads of parallels. Job says a lot of horrible things. He says, I hate the day I was born. God, you're so unfair. And he goes through and through the Bible kind of throwing rocks at God. And in the end... God vindicates Job and says, Job, you're a faithful servant of mine. And you think, how does he do that? Has God kind of, Does he need to kind of save us for a hearing test? Has he heard what Job is saying to him? Job was confused. He was embittered like Asaph. He was grieved. He was upset. He says these awful things against God. And then God says, no, no, you're faithful. What's so interesting and why God can vindicate Job is because all of these processing thoughts are said in his presence. He's talking to God. He's staying there. He's in the sanctuary, so to speak. It's perfectly natural to express your heart concerns, your tears, your frustrations, to punch pillows, but you're praying at the same time. I don't understand. I know you're in charge. I know you love me, but this doesn't add up. When your life gets messier and messier, when death happens to someone that you love and you wish they were still with you, when financial ruin happens, here's the principle process your concerns, your fears, your tears, your losses before the Lord. Don't withdraw. You'll never, ever, ever get answers anywhere else than the God of the whole earth. That's the principle. Keep coming to church even when you don't feel like it. Keep reading your Bible even if it's only a word or a sentence. Meditate on it and pray, not when you need something, but pray that the Lord would help you to pray. Pray that the Lord would drag you to church because you don't want to go. Be honest. Pour out your heart before the Lord. Leave nothing back and leave all the concerns in his safe, sovereign care. I didn't understand what was going on. And then I went to the sanctuary, says Asaph. This is so critical. Maybe you're here and you're full of the joy of the Lord. Maybe you're here and the world doesn't add up. It's great that you're here. Because the Bible has all the answers. And sometimes it's wait. Sometimes you won't get the answers in full until the Lord Jesus returns. But when you're struggling, don't pull back. Pour out your heart before the Lord and go to the sanctuary. But why do you go there? That's number three. Why do you go to the sanctuary? You go there for understanding. You go there for understanding. Whether you're a sort of perplexing Lord what are you doing whether you're in a downward spiral whether verses 4 to 12 is real for you you look at the world and it doesn't work out the problem was Asaph had lost the big picture he'd lost the big picture and he was only looking at the present and the here and now and how people were faring in the world why do you go to the sanctuary you go there for understanding and you go there for perspective boys What's the difference, please? This is not a joke. What's the difference between a square and a cube? Come on, help me out. Thank you. And a square is? Thank you. Go to the top of the class. So, a square is 2D, but a cube is 3D. Here is ASAP, and here are you and I, and we can see the world and our understanding of time and space is 2D. I remember the first time I was very sad... I'm not much better now. I was very sad when I was at secondary school. I loved the moment I was given isometric paper. Do you remember that stuff in maths or geometry? Isometric paper enables you, if you're unable to draw, like me, artistically, you can draw really cool 2D shapes on there and then if you put a line at 30 degrees, it becomes 3D and it kind of pops and you can shade in a colour and you can shade in a face. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, Google it, isometric paper this afternoon, (laughs) not now. Friends, here is Asaph. He doesn't understand what's going on in the world. The world is a square. He can just see in the present. And he understands very little. And then he goes to the sanctuary. And then his understanding of time and space pops. It becomes 3D. He understands not just his limited view of the world. He understands a little bit more of God's purposes and promises for the world. He understands a bit of the past, the present, and the future, verse 17. Until I went to the sanctuary, I didn't get it until I understood a little bit more of God's character, his attributes, his purposes. So here's the big question that people ask, and here's one that we so often struggle to answer. If God is loving, why does he allow suffering? It's a great and a real and important question to wrestle with. And we find that so hard to deal with because we approach it as a square rather than as a cube. Because behind that question, why is a good God, if he exists, why is a good God allow suffering, is a couple of presuppositions, a couple of questions behind that or assumptions. First of all, you're assuming that there's no purpose for suffering. Secondly, you're assuming that a good God must bring us happiness and purpose and well-being. It's just 2D. But were you to go into the sanctuary, were you to read the Bible, were you to ask a Christian who has some grey hairs that question, perhaps they would start to pose a few other questions as the Bible does right from chapters 1 to 3 in the book of Genesis, the first book. This life is filled with pain and suffering. Why? Because we rebelled against God. That's why there's suffering in the world. God allows it, but we have acted in rebellion against God. We've turned our back on him and said no to your loving rule. We'd rather rule the world ourselves. And so the world is full of pain and suffering. You're beginning to see a third dimension to a 2D question, do you see? There's an assumption behind it. What about looking at the behaviour of people? Why does a good God allow suffering? Behind that question is the assumption that says God should be there to bless us like a cosmic genie in the lamp that we can come to whenever we want. But look at the behaviour of people towards one another. Read the newspaper. Look at the behaviour of people towards God. Have we respected God and honoured him as we live for him as number one, as he alone is worth? Behind that assumption, you see, is a third dimension. He went to the sanctuary and he understood there's suffering in the world because we've rebelled against God. God is loving, but he's also wise. God is wise and he's also loving and just. The psalmist goes to the sanctuary and when he does that and when you do that, you stop seeing the world as 2D, you see the third dimension that helps us to look at these big problems in the world and helped Asaph to look at the issue that he was struggling with. The world doesn't add up. When you get hold of the truth, you see, the world stops being 2D. And there's a third dimension to all of the issues that we get so angry about. Why did he go to the sanctuary? He went there for understanding. He went there to try and figure out what was going on. So often our problems is we get too close. And we need to go to the sanctuary afresh. And pour out our heart. And wrestle with the Lord of the universe. Finally, fourthly. What else does he do? He asks the ultimate question. He asks the ultimate question. Here it is, verse 25. Who have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth I desire beside you. This is a kind of a nail in the coffin for anger. He's asking himself, he's asking his heart, as he looks out in the world and it doesn't add up, who am I really living for? Who do I love the most? Who do I trust the most? Who am I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire before you. He comes to a realisation that money is not going to give him joy. It will give some pleasure, limited but real. But the kind of joy he really wants would only be found in the source of joy in God. He's looking at the world, verses 4 to 12, and he says, they're getting fulfillment and I'm not. My foot's slipping and they're succeeding. Friends, the only fulfillment that truly lasts and will satisfy is found in God. Who am I in heaven but you? No one I desire but you. And I think it all comes down to this when he's in the temple. When he's in the temple, he doesn't just get a third degree, as it were, a third dimension of understanding. When he sees something of the attributes and character and perfect nature and majesty of God and how history and time and space is working out under God's good purposes. In seeing God, we always see something of ourself. And that's what happens in verses 21 and 22. This is strange. I've struggled on this. My spirit was embittered. My soul was grieved. I was senseless and ignorant. And then he says, I was a beast towards you. I said to you before, I'm someone that would be pretty happy if there were no animals in the world. I don't do animals very well. I don't do pets. I don't mind if animals are on TV, but any closer than that, it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. Must have had a bad experience when I was younger. But um, they're part of God's creation, so I will enjoy them. I will do my best to. I read a story this week of a man who is a cat lover. He's got a family and he's a cat lover. which I would never truly understand, but there we go. And he says, for the family's good, because his kids have some allergies, every week we bath our cat a couple of times a week. Now, I don't know how you do that, if it's in the same bath or outside with the hose with some shampoo. But here we go. Here's a man that, for the good of the cat and for the well-being of his family and the kids with allergies, he puts the cat thing into a bath and scrubs it clean, washes its hair, makes sure it's clean, clips its nails, does all that stuff. And he said, when you put the cat into the bath, they just hate it. They scream, they're kind of clawing on your hands, they can't wait to get out, they just make an absolute mess and a racket. The cat hates it, but what the cat doesn't know, because it's just a beast. If that washing is not done, it can't stay in our family. If that cleansing is not done, it won't be any longer part of our family because of the allergies that the kid has. All that the cat knows is it bites and scratches, thinking it's going to drown, perhaps. It only exists for its own comfort. It's just a beast. It's a cat. Apparently cats are pretty cool, but it's just a cat who wants to exist for its own comfort. It can't understand the third dimension of time and space. It sees history only as 2D. There's no capacity a cat has for reason. It's just a beast. When you go into the sanctuary, when you understand, when you see the whole, when you ask yourself the ultimate question, I think Asaph, when he sees the majesty of God, begins to understand what a beast he has been in questioning the attributes and purposes and character of God. Asaph goes up into the sanctuary. What would he have seen in Jerusalem? The altar. There would have been a beast on the altar. Bloody sacrifice. Slaughtered. What does he see? He sees animals that have, whose lives have been taken for the good of the whole. And perhaps, perhaps he came to a realisation to say, I should have been up there. I've treated God with a lack of respect and awe and reverence. I've questioned him again and again. I've been angry. I've shaken my fist at him. What do you know? I should have been up there. Perhaps he thought that. Perhaps he figured that out. But even if he didn't, we can. As we look back at the cross, we can see that all our, verse 25, all our beastliness, all our anger, all our fist shaking against God, all our sin was taken on the ultimate sacrifice, not in a literal temple, but on a cross outside the city walls. He took our punishment so that no longer do we need to be slain for our beastliness, Those times are over. And when you look at that, then you can say, 25, who have I in heaven but you? And on earth, what else could I want besides someone who loves me like that? When you see the gospel, when the Holy Spirit really screws it into your heart so it doesn't budge, you begin to say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. And as you struggle with anger and depression, as you struggle even to think, what's the point? Wouldn't the world be a better place without me? Hold on to that sentence. Who have I in heaven but you? And on earth, what else could I have besides someone who loves me as much to die for me? Anger and sovereignty put together I came across this story this week of a, a missionary called Alan Gardner, 1851. He went out on a ship to establish a, a new mission community in South America. He was supposed to get to the mission field, but his ship was wrecked on some islands. And um, he died there. But he had quite a while living there with uh, a group of other people who were going to be part of the mission community that he was setting up. It was a horrible time. Everything went wrong for him. He never got to the mission field. He must have thought like Asaph at some point. What are you doing? I've given up so much for you. He prayed, I'm sure, oh Lord, rescue me. And no one ever came to rescue him. And he died. And later his body was found along with the bodies of the other people who lost their lives. But also there was a journal that Alan Gardner wrote in. And the last thing he wrote in his journal remarkably is Psalm 34.10 that says the young lions do lack and suffer hunger but they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. He wrote that in his journal. But that wasn't the last sentence. The last sentence in his journal was this before he died I'm sure. He says I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. What? Come into the sanctuary. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy just for us to see the experiences of our life in 2D, in one dimension. And uh, to not wrestle with you when we feel angry at you, at loss or pain or heartache when we're confused that the newspaper just causes us to doubt if you're in control or if you're there at all, please help us not to withdraw. Please help us to run to the sanctuary, to run to the Bible, and to process all our cares and concerns before the cross, to see there the definition of love, as you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for us, died in our place, We have treated you in a way that you do not deserve and you've given us grace that we could never earn. Thank you and please help us to pray, who have we in heaven but you? What is there on earth to desire apart from you? Please help us at the same time to have godly anger. Help us to be angry at the things that anger you. But help us please to never be people who process our anger or confusion or cares or concerns away from the cross of King Jesus, away from the sanctuary. Help us to be a people who are found there in good times and especially in hard times. Amen. Amen.